This morning, I'm continuing our series uh, with the beginning of the Lent season through Palm Sunday, where we are devotionally tracking together as a church on the YouVersion app. If you haven't downloaded that, feel free to pull your phone out, go to YouVersion, download the 40 Days Journey with Jesus devotion. You're only a week or so behind. It's easy to catch up. It only takes about five or ten minutes a day. And it's a really well-written devotional. And, of course, it points us back into the Scripture together as a church. I can't emphasize enough how important it is for us this year that the biggest thing we're building is, is a sense of love and community amongst ourselves as we seek to build a sense of love and community in our actual community. So this is one small way that we're looking to do that. I know that I've been encouraged as I go through the devotional day by day with you guys and the others that have joined us on the YouVersion app. And taking our sermons from that same text that we're reading devotionally during the week, we're looking at the questions that Jesus asked on his way to the cross. From the time that he was anointed in Bethany uh, by Mary with the precious oil, the precious perfume, all the way up through his moment on the cross and his resurrection and the giving of the Great Commission, he asked seven different questions of different groups of people. We've had a chance to look at two of those questions. Why are you bothering this woman was the first one. And then last week we took a look at, are you still sleeping? You know, can't you stay awake for one hour and join me in prayer? This week, we're going to be taking our text from Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 50. It's a short text, but super powerful as we look at this question that he asked one of his disciples. And of course, that disciple was Judas. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please join me in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47. While he was still speaking, he just had the prayer in the olive garden, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? And this is the question we're going to be studying this morning, specifically in its initial context. Judas, friend, why have you come? And then we're going to be taking a look at different applications of that question for us as a contemporary church. But first, I'd like to address the question this morning and answer this question. What exactly was Judas's betrayal? Because if you just look at the text on its initial value, you have one friend meeting another friend at night in a place that was common to both of them, exchanging greetings and then asking a question. Like, how is this actually a betrayal? Like, this kind of thing happens all the time when you go to Panera to get some work done and you run into whoever it is. It happens almost every time. Or you're at Target picking up a few things and you run into whoever and you exchange greetings and it's like, how is this? There's nothing betraying about that. It's just called running into somebody in the community. So how, in fact, was this a betrayal by Judas? How did history change because of his evil intent, which came to a head at this actual moment in the text? And the answer is, is that the leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes, were looking for an opportunity to get Jesus in custody. Because they knew that if they got Jesus in custody, they already had false witnesses lined up. They had a false narrative lined up that they were going to end his life by lying, basically. And the text is very clear about that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 and 2, 
where we began our study, says that the Pharisees had an evil plot to get Jesus in trouble, and all they needed was to get their hands on him in a quiet way, and once they had him in their control, they were going to take care of actually the false stuff that was going to happen to end Jesus' life. But they needed to get Jesus in their custody in a quiet way because he was a popular teacher of the people. He was a healer. He was well-liked. He spoke with authority. He wasn't afraid to challenge the authority of the Pharisees in public. And the common people loved Jesus and his ministry. And so they knew that if they had a show of force and just went out and arrested Jesus during the day when he was teaching in the temple, that they would have a riot on their hands during the Holy Weekend, celebrating Passover. And so the betrayal was that Judas, who knew Jesus' habits, who knew Jesus' patterns, who knew what Jesus liked to do and when he liked to do it, would arrange for an opportunity to get a mob in a quiet place at a quiet time where nobody would be witness to Jesus' essentially his kidnapping. Uh, Judas basically arranged for the white man to show up at an opportune time to club Jesus in the head and put him in the white van and take him away. Because they had everything else already figured out. The trial was going to be a joke. The false witnesses were lined up. The charges were made up. They had the narrative all dialed in. They just needed to get him off the streets without causing a riot. And so Judas was the one that set that up. Here's the first reality or first observation that we see from the text when we're answering this question, what exactly was Judas's betrayal? Judas knew Jesus' habits, but he didn't know his heart. Judas knew Jesus' habits. He knew his patterns. He knew his likes. He knew his dislikes. He knew where he would be, when he would be there, but he didn't know why. Judas knew Jesus' habits, but he did not understand Jesus' heart. And so kind of the first thought that I, I came across as I was working my way through this text is that sounds like a pretty easy mistake to make to me. That once we're in the pattern of living out our faith, that we know the things that we need to do. We know where Jesus can be found. We know where Jesus' people can be found. We know the kinds of things that Jesus' people do. But maybe we have lost the reason of why we do them. The, we know that we go to camp every summer, right? And I had to make a painful announcement that this is not the year. Some of you, it may not be a big deal. Okay, whatever. What's the problem? The problem is, is that if you've had the experiences that I've had, you know that more children make more decisions of faith in the least amount of time that lasts forever during that week than at any other time in our church history. It's just a fact. And if you're a parent of one of these children, you know what I'm talking about. Your kid came home and is having conversations with you that are validated by the pastor who was there and saw it happen, and you've never had that conversation with your child before. Your child would not have had that conversation with you if they had not been to camp. And so for some of us, not going to camp is not a big deal, but for the rest of us, we know the heart of why we go to camp. We know that we have a habit. We like to go to camp. Bad announcement, can't go this year. Other stuff going on. But for some of us, we feel aggrieved by that because we know the heart of why we go to camp. We know our wife's favorite restaurant, but when was the last time we took her there? We know our child likes to go out into the driveway and shoot hoops. When was the last time we shot hoops with him? We know our husband likes to go out in the garage and hover around on his wherever. When was the last time we just sat there and watched him? We know our loved one's habits and patterns, but when was the last time we actually understood their heart? and partnered with them in a way that they could appreciate 
that we're actually not only understanding their habits and their patterns, but we're understanding their heart as well. And most importantly for us as men and women of faith this morning, do we understand Jesus' habits? It's good to pray, it's good to have devotions, it's good to tithe, it's good to serve the church, but do we understand his heart in all those things? Because if we understand Jesus' heart and all the things that we would consider habits of being a Christian, then we're going to have life in those habits, we're going to have life in those practices that we'll never have any, in any other way. And so Judas knew the habits of Jesus, and he was able to betray Jesus because he knew Jesus' habits, but Judas had no idea what Jesus' heart was. Once upon a time in Israel's history, there were thousands of young men gathered for war, but only one knew where the real battle was. Only one took the initiative to fight the actual battle and win the actual victory. And his name was David. Hey guys, has the king really said you get to marry the hot princess chick if you deal with this guy right now? Uh, yeah, the king actually said that. But you're like 14. So there's a number of reasons why this is a no-no for you right now. And here's what David saw. He saw the real battle. Hold the phone. We have someone who is impugning God's honor right now by insulting his sovereign command of this nation and his men who are gathered here for war. He is making fun of God, and can't anybody else see right now that God's wrath is building? God's power is building. God's authority right now is waiting for someone to step up. He's just a teenager. The text in 1 Samuel chapter 17 says that when he approached the Philistine, that he saw that he was ruddy and handsome and pleasing in appearance, and he despised him. And he said, if you come out with sticks and stones to take on an actual warrior, because Goliath thought the battle had something to do with the actual territorial conflict that was going on. He didn't understand that he had called down the wrath of God on him and his army. David, of the thousands of men who were gathered for war, was the only one that knew where the real battle was. He was the only one that knew where the real power was. He was the only one that knew where the real authority was. I've got five smooth stones, but I only need one. I'm going to put it right between your eyeballs. And I'm going to cut your head off. And I'm going to feed your body to the wild animals along with all y'all. Because you don't get to call on my God the way you've been calling on my God right now. And he's going to do a victory right now. Let me show you. David, of the thousands of men who were gathered for war that day, was the only one that saw where God's heart was. All the other men were trained for battle. All the other ones were equipped for battle. All the other ones had the habit of battle. But none of them had the heart of the war. None of them saw it. David did. And the tragedy of these few short verses is that Judas knew the habits of Jesus, but he did not know his heart. The second question that we have to wrestle with in this text is why did Judas feel he was doing the right thing? Why did Judas feel it was okay to receive 30 pieces of silver to arrange for a quiet place at a quiet time when Jesus could be handed over quietly and then led through the process that led to his death? Why did Judas think he was actually doing the world a favor? By betraying Jesus in the way he did. Long story short, and I'd like to show you from another text that I think gives us some insights into this text, is that Jesus was solving a problem that Judas didn't think he had. 
You see, Judas thought his biggest problem was that he didn't have enough political autonomy. Judas thought his biggest problem was that Jesus didn't have a big enough following. Judas thought his biggest problem was that he didn't have enough money. Judas thought his biggest problem was that Rome was in charge of Israel instead of Israel being in charge of Israel. All of these things were problems. All of these things were legitimate concerns. None of them were the biggest problem confronting Judas right now. And Jesus was trying to solve the biggest problem. And Judas did not appreciate these efforts at all. Thought Jesus was off track and he was either going to get him out of the way or force him to be who he thought he should be, the new king of Israel on the throne. You see, Jesus was solving a problem that Judas did not appreciate, and the problem, from Jesus' perspective, was sin. Jesus was trying to solve a sin problem. Jesus was trying to create a path by which humans could approach his heavenly Father and not be consumed in the holiness that you can't escape whenever you're dealing with God. <laughs> I had a child this past week. What was he talking about? I do some subbing in a local high school. Someone decided that it was a good idea to launch something into the surface of the sun for some reason. And I just looked at him, and I was like, you do realize that anything you're trying to deliver to the sun is going to be in some form of a vehicle that is going to be evaporated thousands of miles before it gets to the surface of the sun. And they're like, oh yeah. You can't actually touch the surface of the sun. Everything is consumed long before it gets there because the sun is like wicked hot. We can't approach God. We can sing the songs, we can say the prayers, we can give the monies, we can teach the kids, we can give up a week of our vacation in the summer, take little pagans to camp and hope that Jesus does a thing in their life. He does. It's worth taking a week off of camp. We can do all the things to try and live out a habitual Christian life. But at the end of the day, what Jesus is trying to solve is the fact that we have an inherent incapability of being in a relationship with God because His holiness would just consume us the moment we get close to Him. His holiness is not something that we can approach in our current condition. And so, yes, Israel was an occupied territory. Yes, Judas needed more money for whatever reason. Yes, there were opportunities that Jesus was purposely letting slip through his fingers that he could have capitalized on his authoritative teaching. He could have capitalized on his power to heal. He could have capitalized on his popularity with the crowds. He could have capitalized on his ability to miraculously feed anybody in the room at any given moment. And Jesus was purposely letting these things go to the side because the one theme of Matthew chapter 26 to 28 is I am going to the cross. That is happening, people. I am going to the cross, and it is there that I'm going to die because there is a problem that only I can solve, and it has to do with sin. And Judas didn't get that. Judas didn't appreciate it. Why did Judas feel he was doing something that should be done? Because Jesus was trying to solve a problem that Judas didn't feel he had. Or he definitely did not value his sin problem the same way Jesus did. Listen to this psalm. I have the words on the screen. I, 
I'd like you guys to see this psalm. It is Psalm 32, written by David. And in your Bible, there might be a little uh, phrase that your translators put in there. It says something like, the joy of forgiveness. Listen to how David writes about having our sins forgiven. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, if Judas were to read that text, he might say, How joyful is the one who has a leader he can trust. How joyful is the one who has a conquering army at his command. How joyful is the one who has more money than he currently has. We could read this verse and we could say things like, How joyful is the one who has a promotion at work. How joyful is the one who has a happy marriage. How joyful is the one who has well-adjusted children. How joyful is the one who has a bigger house? How joyful is the one who's able to afford replacing their cars in a timely fashion so they don't have to strip the catalytic converter off and straight pipe them that it sounds like a tractor? Might be talking from personal experience there. How joyful is that one who can afford to do that? Fill in the blank. What does the text say? How joyful is the one whose transgressions have been forgiven? When was the last time we felt that way about our transgressions being forgiven? How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit? David is saying, use your imagination and try to picture the joy. Is it like a bridegroom on his wedding day? Is it like a parent at the birth of their child? Is it like the employee who gets a bonus? What is that person's joy? And David is basically saying, this kind of joy is better than all those joys. What, I, I can't even tell you how joyful the one is whose transgression is forgiven. The one who can land on the surface of the sun and walk around. The one who can be in the presence of God without fear for their life. Describe that person's joy. Because when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you, at a time that you may be found. Friends, why did you come? What would have happened if Judas took a knee right there? And said, I don't know what's going on right now, but my greatest need is to understand your heart. I've gathered this mob, all the sticks and the clubs and the swords and the torches, I know there's a plan, because I'm a part of it. But what would have happened if Judas had said, I know your habits, Jesus, but I don't know your heart. And I just need to be real with you right now. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you at a time that you may be found. He knew where to find him. That's why he was able to betray him. He knew his habits, but he didn't know his heart. Because for those of us who have a different answer to the question, friends, why are you here? Why have you come? 
Why have you sought me out? Why are you standing in front of me right now? For those of us with a different answer, when great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. The passage that Corey Ten Boom made popular, brought to the public consciousness, you are my hiding place, comes from this song. You protect me from trouble. She had trouble with a capital T. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. That's what happens to those of us who come and are faithful to pray at a time where Jesus may be found. Verse 8, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. I love the way I think the NIV translates this. It says, I will guide you with my eye. I had someone uh, here at River Church recently point out to me that they missed seeing me and my boys in action. Because we're a pretty good team. We're a pretty cohesive team. We've been practicing for a long time. We started, of course, when they were children, following me around the house. When you're seven, you get your first knife, you become a man. You stop doing the womanly chores as much as you have been. You start doing stuff outside and then doing the other chores inside to help your mom. And uh, what happens is, is this person at church saw that I hardly ever have to say a word. That when it comes to my boys, not only am I able to guide them with my eye, I just look at something. And they know the thing. That they can do the same to me. They look at something. And I know what they need. I love that idea that we're so close to the Lord that not only are we surviving this experience with His holiness, that we have a relationship with Him, that when His attention shifts, our attention naturally shifts as well, and we know His heart. I will lead you with my eyeball. Well, what does that mean? That means we're looking the Lord in the face and we're seeing what He sees. I will guide you with my eyes. It's like a high-functioning team. They start to move at the crack of the bat. And then uh, Psalm, the psalmist David likes to use a positive example, which he just gave. I will guide you with my eye. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. And then there's an antithesis or a negative. Do not be like a horse or mule. And yes, the KJV says that word. <laughs> If you're looking for the scriptural verse that says, don't be a... It's, it's there. It's Psalm 32, verse 9. Don't use it with your spouse and say that you're just quoting scripture after that. That conversation will not be productive. This is God speaking to his people. Don't be like a horse or a mule that I have to beat with a stick, is the paraphrased version. Right? What it actually says is, without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it does not come near you. It's just a powerful, it's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. Allow me to guide you with my eye, like a high-functioning team. Don't make me beat you with a stick. Don't make me put something in your mouth and jerk your head around. I can, and I will, and there are times when Lord has had to do that, and I'm grateful for those times too, but let's be the kind of people that we know the habits because we know the heart. Let me guide you with my eye. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. We used to do this activity 
as a ropes course instructor is called will in the wind is light as a feather briefly you take a group of about six to twelve people form a very tight circle shoulder to shoulder you assume a spotting position with your hands you flex with your knees you shift your weight with your hips and there's a person in the middle who is blindfolded who is straight as a board telephone pole right everything stiff and tight they don't bend at the knees or anything and on a series of commands you tell them to fall in any direction they want forward backward sideways just fall because you're surrounded by supporting hands and as the person is gently passed around the circle like a willow in the wind at a command from the leader the person is then gently lowered all the way to the ground they're supported and the team picks them up above their head and then just gently rocks them all the way to the ground you wouldn't believe the tears and the healing that i've seen come from this because they've never felt so supported in their life and you do the whole thing dead silent there's no talking at all it's a very powerful activity you can probably google it on youtube and see willow in the wind and lies a feather it's a very powerful activity to help a team grow together to teach a team how to take care of each other and to help one person feel more supported than they've ever been in their entire life and that's the picture of this text right here many pains come to the wicked when we are alone in our sin and we fall there is nobody to catch us and we just got to scrape our knees but the one who trusts in the lord will have faithful love the hebrew word which is hard to translate into the english is called chesed h-e-s-e-d and there's no way is it that you can translate that one word with any one word in english you have to combine a series of words but it's usually translated faithful love or unfailing love or love that never fails surrounding him it's as if the lord is a whole team around you and when we fall he is there to support us with the kind of love that would never let us bounce off the deck that he will if he has to bring us all the way down low to bring us up high he will have faithful love surrounding him this is greater than the joy on your wedding day. This is greater than the joy of having a child. This is greater than the joy of closing on a loan. This is greater than the joy of buying a new house. This is greater than the joy of a promotion. This is in Judas's life. This is greater than the joy of having a leader you can trust. This is greater than having more money than you currently have. This is greater than your nation having political autonomy. What this psalm is describing. What is the joy of the one whose transgression is forgiven? It's like having the Lord stare you in the face and you can unflinchingly look at him and he changes his gaze and you instantly know what the Lord's desire is. It's like falling down and never hitting the ground. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You righteous ones, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In the garden that night, Jesus was solving a problem that Judas was blind to. And this is what Jesus said, friends, why have you come? We have the opportunity this morning to provide a different answer than the one that Judas provided on that night. And so I'd like to ask Nathan and his team to come on up and help me wrap up our time together this morning. Because here's the question for us. Why are you here? You are in the presence of the Lord. You are surrounded by his people. We've had a season of prayer and worship, and we've heard from his word. Why are we here? What is our understanding of our need 
for forgiveness? Is it something that gives us indescribable joy? Is it something that gives us confidence in our faith so that we feel like we are being guided by the Lord's eye? Or is he beating us like a mule? <laughs> is he jerking our head around? Oh, that we would covet forgiveness more than a raise, more than a promotion at work, even more for the things that are undeniably joyful that we could go on and on and describe. Some of them I've mentioned this morning. That as his people, we would be the first to say that we have experienced that kind of joy. That we have come to the Lord because our bones felt like the heat of summer was upon us. But until we had made an honest and transparent confession and prayer to the Lord, our strength was sapped. But that the moment that we did, peace and forgiveness and strength began to do what peace and forgiveness and strength do. What would that person look like at work? What would that person look like in our marriage? What would that person look like as a parent? What would that person look like as an employee? What would that person look like as a boss? The one who takes great joy in the forgiveness that we receive because we walk with our Savior understand his heart and his habits, and we keep a short account. That's a challenge for us this morning. Jesus is asking us, friends, why are you here? Why have you come? And every Sunday we have an opportunity, whether it's a communion Sunday or not, to pray a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I long to be led that way. I long to have that kind of faithful love surround me, because my spouse fails me, my children fail me, my boss fails me, my employees fail me, my, my church family fails me, I fail me. But you never fail me. And so I acknowledge my sin before you, I turn from the things that I know are displeasing to you and myself and others, and I humbly say, I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. I'm going to dedicate myself to learning your ways, not just your habits, but your heart. So I accept Jesus Christ by faith because you know what? He went to the cross for me. And that question that he asked Judas is a great question that I need to answer, and I'm giving you a different answer this morning. The answer is, would you teach me? Would you disciple me? Would you mentor me? Would you show me your plan? Teach me your habits so that I may learn your heart. Help me to learn your heart so that I may better understand your habits. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. That's a good prayer for you. If you've never prayed that prayer before, you pray that prayer for you. Friend, why did you come? Well, I came this morning to pray a prayer like that. Because I need to dedicate myself, rededicate myself to the joy of my salvation because my sins have been forgiven. So anything else I can ask for this morning, that's where I want to leave you today. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for a Savior who asks us good questions. Thank you for a Savior who waits for our response. Thank you for a Savior who is willing to guide us by his eye, but who will beat us with a stick if necessary. Father, may we seek the joy that comes with being forgiven above every other joy. May we accept those joys for what they are, but may we never confuse them with the joy that comes from having a personal relationship with our Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name.